Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we're going to revisit Khurasan, the eastern half of the Caliphate that we've largely ignored since the conclusion of the Great Fitna 50 years back. Following his victory in 820, Al-Ma'mun assigned the province to the Tahirids, who governed it on behalf of the Caliphate ever since. We'll explore how this arrangement began, how it worked, how it broke down, what came after it, and what it all meant for the relationship between the Abbasids and the East. Episode 75, Masters of Khurasan. For reasons that I hope are clear to everyone by now, our Arab historians privilege developments in the Arab parts of the Caliphate, especially those closest to the seat of official power. Since our show is based on this primary oral material, we've mirrored their interests quite well. Think of how we abandoned any discussion of the Andalus, Al-Maghrib, Algeria, and Yemen as soon as they developed their own dynasties. As the caliphate's power waned, these statelets and tributaries increasingly asserted their autonomy and eventually broke away. However, there's one region which keeps forcing its way back into our narrative time and again. Khurasan. To better appreciate Khurasan's fundamental importance in the Abbasid story, let's consider the full sweep of the ruling dynasty's history. The Abbasid revolution started there because the province was the most receptive to its da'wah, the covert project to replace the Umayyads with the Prophet's clan. Khurasani armies bested Marwan II and secured the caliphate for al-Saffah in 750. His successor, al-Mansur, established a new capital in 765 and generously doled out land to his loyal warriors, the Khurasaniyah earning them the nickname Al-Abna, or the Sons of the State. In the great fitna between his great-grandchildren sixty years later, Al-Amin filled his armies with the descendants of the Abna, while Al-Ma'mun relied on the peoples of Khurasan. You'd be forgiven for thinking that Al-Mu'tasim broke the Khurasani monopoly on power by relying on Turks, but it's not so straightforward. Not only were these Central Asian warriors mostly captured in Khurasani raids, but both the term Turk and Khurasani are often loosely applied, leading to significant overlap in our sources. Considering all of this, it's impressive that we have managed to avoid a discussion of the East for as long as we have. It's only thanks to the Tahirids, who pretty much had it all under control since coming to power in the 820s. But this is a good opportunity for us to turn back and see what we missed while Iraq captivated our attention. It would help to have a rough idea of the geography of the Caliphate's east. I'll try and describe it as we go along without making it tedious, and you can always refer to the maps posted on the episode's page on thecaliphs.com. Shoutouts to Karam and Matt for letting me know that the site was down for a while. 
thinking out loud, the website is actually the most expensive part of producing this show for me. Who knows how long I'll choose to support it, seeing how bad I am at actually maintaining it. I encourage listeners to take advantage while it's still around. Every episode has a little glossary with more details about the figures who feature in it, and some, like today's, have maps or pictures too. Still, I figure most folks tune in via some streaming app and don't get a chance to check out the website. That's perfectly fine. If you missed the map, all you need to know is that Khurasan was very, very far away. When it was first conquered by the Arabs, the caliph assigned it to the armies of Basra. It would take a whole year for one of them to make the journey east to levy taxes and pacify rebellions. Communication with the remote province were slow. The swiftest messenger took six weeks to cross the 2,000 kilometers or so, separating Central Asia from Iraq. A one-way trip that would take an army at least four months. The Umayyads ultimately found it necessary to establish an Arab city, Maru, as a provincial capital, and they sent tens of thousands of settlers east. It helped them maintain control for a while, but as soon as conflict closer to home distracted them, Maru became a rival power base instead. Its location on the distant eastern frontier meant that it had access to experienced armies and enjoyed political autonomy whenever the capital had its hands full with its own problems. Instead of pursuing independence, or perhaps in pursuit of lasting independence, Rebellions in Khurasan culminated in an outright invasion of Iraq. Maru had already triumphed twice against the central government, first with the Abbasid Revolution, then again in the Great Fitna. Enter the Tahirids, supreme rulers of Khurasan for the 50 years between the Great Fitna and 870. By allowing the role to stay in one family, al-Ma'mun had essentially made them feudal lords. The caliphate had other vassal dynasties and tributaries, but the arrangement with the Tahirids was unprecedented in scope. The challenge was that a government in the east required political and military independence in order to effectively govern its lands, but that an independent east would impoverish and inevitably clash with the caliphate's west. Al-Ma'mun's solution was to grant the Tahirids total control over their domain, but require more of them than taxes and subservience. In order to keep them tethered to the caliphate, they also had to pay the salaries of Baghdad's armies and furnish a commander to lead them from their own house. This position morphed from head of security into governor of Baghdad, after al-Mu'tasim moved his court to nearby Samarra. You may recall that the Tahirid governor of Baghdad played a major role in the proxy fitna of 865. So in a nutshell, the Tahirids weren't some independent dynasty, they were intimately involved in imperial affairs. The new arrangement worked out terrifically for al-Ma'mun. It is no exaggeration to say that the Tahirids were the backbone of his power. They helped him stabilize a caliphate still reeling from civil war and bring about a new golden age. 
Al-Ma'mun's great general, Tahir ibn Hussain, only ruled the province for a single year before he passed away and was succeeded first by his son Talha, then another son, Abdullah. Talha died fighting Karajites in Sistan, an important detail to keep in mind. See, Sistan, or variably Sajistan or Sakistan, was the southernmost part of Khurasan, around the area where modern Iran, Pakistan, and Afghanistan meet. Its remoteness and sparse population made it a hotbed for Karajite movements and other insurgencies. They got the better of the first of Tahir's children, but the second got them back. By pacifying Sistan and coming out on top against Maziyar, the Isbahbad of Tabaristan, Abdullah extended the Tahirid domain to its largest proportions. I'll post a map of this greater Khurasan for reference. Abdullah ruled for 17 years, from the late 820s to the mid-40s, and he proved to be the most impressive Tahirid to ever govern the province. He relocated Khurasan's capital from eastern Maru to central Nisapur, which allowed readier access to its lands. When Abdullah died and passed down power to his son Tahir, he bequeathed dominion over Khurasan, Rai, Jurjan, Tabaristan, Kirman, and Sistan, not to mention the vassalage of a number of remote regions like Khwarezm and Transoxiana, a veritable empire. Abdullah was a tough act to follow, and Tahir paled in comparison. He didn't leave much of a mark on history despite having a reign as long as his father's. Basically, the entire span of Al-Mutawakkil's tenure, with a little extra on either end. Sistan was lost to Karajites during his time, precipitating the rise of the Safarids, our chief antagonists for today. Tahir didn't do a great job in Tabaristan either, and it would be lost a few short years after his death. I am conflicted whether or not to blame this breakdown of authority on him entirely. In an ideal world, the caliph would have sent reinforcements to help the Tahirid maintain control. On the other hand, Thamarra had no history of interference in the province, mainly because the governor's father had managed to keep greater Khurasan in check all on his lonesome. What really spelled the end for the Tahirids wasn't Tahir's mediocre reign, but his successors. His son Muhammad was young and inexperienced when he got the job, and he quickly lost Tabaristan to a Zaydi revolt. The natives of the mountains on the southern coast of the Caspian had always been fiercely independent. Aided by their alpine terrain, they were some of the last peoples to submit to the caliphate. It is no surprise that they instantly took advantage of the anarchy in Samarra and the unseasoned governor in Nisapur to rebel in 862. While Muhammad deployed considerable military resources to reconquer Tabaristan in vain, a new power was rising in Sistan. There's no real agreement on how Yaqub al-Safar secured the province. A couple episodes back, I called him Yusuf four times in a row. It was embarrassing to listen to. The sanitized version of his rise to power says that Yaqub, 
a simple coppersmith, or safar in Arabic, distinguished himself while defending his city of Zarang against Karajite raids in the 50s. He earned the trust of his fellow citizens, and together they hunted down the Karajite leader on the outskirts of town and brought peace to the southern part of Greater Khorasan. While many of these elements feature in other retellings, there are good reasons to believe that Yaqub was a Karajite captain himself, or that he made common cause with some Karajites against others. I want to remind listeners that the term Karajite didn't have much ideological meaning at this point. In this context, it refers to any Muslims who took up arms against the Caliphate. The most convincing hints suggesting that Yaqub was more combatant than coppersmith are descriptions of his lifestyle. He derided those who lived within walls and lay on mattresses, preferring to sleep on his shield in a tent. He ate simply, more often than not with his men. He never kept a harem, but had a posse of battle-hardened troops he would train and spar with for entertainment. You get the idea. He was a warrior through and through. The first thing Yaqub did after taking Sistan in 865 was write to Samarra, declaring that his actions were carried out in the caliph's name. Yaqub wasn't looking to hand power back to the authorities, but to legitimize his claim over the land as its Abbasid governor. His letter reached al-Mu'taz right after his side's victory in the proxy fitna, and with it came riches from the east, money desperately needed by the penniless caliph. Samarra recognized Yaqub as the emir, or commander, of Sistan, but he continued to push beyond his borders. By 867, his northern excursions began to butt against the southernmost reaches of Tahirid control. His armies even took some Tahirids captive, but Yaqub let them go when the caliph requested their release. In 868, the Safarid made a play for Kirman the area that lies between his home of Sistan and the rich province of Faris, or Persia, to his west. Both provinces suffered from significant Karajite activity, and as a result our sources struggle to get things straight. I'm going to cut through all the noise and focus only on what matters to us. Yaqub had no trouble taking first Kirman, then Shiraz, the capital of Faris. Instead of pillaging the city, he merely arrested its grandees, expropriated all their wealth, and forwarded generous amounts to Samarra, assuring the caliph of his enduring loyalty. All this accomplished, Yaqub simply turned around and abandoned Faris without pressing his claim to it. It's not like he pacified Karajite movements for the Abbasids, because those same Karajites were still there after he left. Basically, he proved that nobody could best his armies, and looted a whole lot. When the anarchy came to an end in 870, and the Abbasids finally had some room to breathe, they came up with a new strategy for dealing with the Safarids. We're told Yaqub was appointed as Lord of Kirman, Sistan, and Belch, or Bactria. Kirman was a desolate province, ridden with Karajites, 
and Balkh extended beyond the eastern border of the Caliphate. The intent was to draw Yaqub's energies east, diverting them from Tahirid territory in the north and the Caliphate's heartlands in the west. The treasures Yaqub plundered from Balkh did improve his standing in Samarra, but Talha wisely still considered the Safarids to be a wild card. His instincts were proven right in 873, the year Yaqub attacked the Tahirid seat of power in Nisapur. There wasn't a real build-up to these hostilities. It's kind of the opposite, really. Tahirid power had steadily crumbled as the dynasty hemorrhaged resources in their losing fight against Tabaristan. Nearby mountainous regions were emboldened by the success of the Zaydi resistance to Tahirid authority, and principalities like Jurjan began to break away as well. Other regional powers could see the writing on the wall, and they became less pliant and cooperative. Yaqub was singularly well-positioned to take advantage of this collapse. From Sistan, he rode north through Herat, then on to Nisapur. The governor, Muhammad ibn Tahir, refused to flee and seemed to believe that he could cow Yaqub with a stern lecture on hierarchy or something. In August 873, the Safarids conquered Khurasan's capital without striking a single blow, and Muhammad was taken into captivity with over a hundred members of his house. Once again, Yaqub sent ingratiating missives to Samarra, laden with riches. He claimed that he had never sought to unseat the Tahirids, but that the people of Khurasan demanded it of him following the dynasty's failure to maintain order. He even forwarded the head of a Karajite leader who had used the title Commander of the Faithful for decades in Tahirid territory. It was Yaqub's way of saying that he could do a better job of protecting Abbasid interests. Despite these gifts and assurances, Talha held firm to his belief that the Safarids were bad news. He wrote back to Yaqub with orders to immediately release Muhammad ibn Tahir and vacate all Tahirid territory. Instead of desisting as commanded, the Safarid decided to press ahead into insurgent Tabaristan. He did a lot better than the Tahirids had managed but even when he won the day, his foes simply retreated out of reach into the thick mountain forests. He captured and taxed the major cities of Tabaristan, only for their champions to reorganize and continue to harass him. Some narrations say the Safarids lost up to 40,000 men in these campaigns, a number so large it must be an exaggeration. But you know, it tracks well with the record of Arab, Khurasani, and Turkish loss of life from earlier invasions. Yaqub once more wrote to Samarra, this time telling them how he'd chastised their Zaydi foes and captured many errant Hashemites in the Caliph's name. It's clear that Yaqub's disobedience was an effort to win over the Abbasids and be named Lord of Greater Khurasan. The problem, though, was that the ruling clan had no reason to trust this warlord, and plenty of reasons to fear him. Sure, he sent money back to Iraq, but that was a mere fraction of what he looted, 
and he used the wealth he kept for one purpose only, war. To be clear, Yaqub had no record of governing or policy-making. All he did was command and conquer. His armies were comprised of Sistanese warriors, Turkish mercenaries, Karajites, soldiers of fortune, and others with nothing to lose. Unlike the rebels we covered last time, though, this wasn't a ragtag horde of never-do-wells. They underwent brutal, routinely fatal training to weed out the chaff. As a result, his armies were full of disciplined cavalrymen trained to follow Yaqub's orders to the letter. They lived large, and he compensated them extremely well if they ever got to an age or physical condition when they could no longer fight. All this rightly terrified the Abbasids, and although there's no agreement on what they did about it, the ending is always the same. Most accounts say Talha denied Yaqub's appeal and insisted he withdraw back to Sistan. The ones that seek to make the Safarids look extra bad claim that Samarra gave Yaqub everything he had asked for, but his lust for blood and power was simply insatiable. Either way, there was to be a third showdown between the Caliphate and the East. It's unclear how many troops Yaqub set out with to topple the Abbasids, somewhere around 20,000. He had to leave some forces behind to contend with rebellions led by ex-Tahirid loyalists. But in mid-875, he once again conquered Shiraz. It was only a pit stop along his way to Iraq, though, and he continued west into Al-Ahwaz, or Khuzestan, taking most of the province before the end of the year. That's where he ran into the rebels we discussed last time. His main takeaway from that encounter was that the marshlands were impassable and he had to find a different route to Samarra. Luckily for Yaqub, Abu al-Saj, the leader of the Ushrusaniya, defected to his camp. The commander and his men guided Yaqub's army along the east of the Tigris, helping them avoid danger even as the Abbasids strategically destroyed dams to obstruct their path. I'll post a map of the road they took from Al-Ahwaz into Iraq. Obviously, the Abbasids couldn't just hunker down in Samarra. The fall of Baghdad would have certainly spelled the end of the Caliphate. So in the spring of 876, Talha marched an army of 20,000 or so out of the capital, leaving his son Ahmad in charge of its defense. The battle between the Caliphate and the Safarids took place about 50 miles southeast of Baghdad, near the town of Deir al-Aqul, in early April. It raged on for a whole day. Yaqub was injured in the fierce melee, but stayed in it like the warrior chief that he was. Some of the Caliphate's boats managed to sneak up behind his forces, disrupting their camp. Abbasid reinforcements demoralized his troops, and eventually even this infamously disciplined army began to splinter. When it fell back, the Abbasids flooded their retreat, drowning many of them and trapping others. Defeated, Yaqub withdrew to Al-Ahwaz, where he spent the last three years of his life then succumbed to colic. 
the Safarid threat was finally over. Before we go on with our narrative, I just want to say a few words about how history remembers Yaqub. Our Arab accounts paint a strikingly martial picture of the man, and it's hard to argue with them considering his many imposing military accomplishments. He was no intellectual, he couldn't read or speak Arabic, nor did he care much for religious learning. Despite his general lack of interest in culture, Yaqub is sometimes cast as the first champion of Persian revivalism. This seems completely wrong to me, but I suppose with the Iranian intermezzo less than a century away, these sorts of misreadings are to be expected. Several eastern dynasties will win their independence from the Caliphate, and the Safarids were indeed trailblazers in that sense. While his spirit successors will promote Persian culture in their courts, Yaqub doesn't seem to have had the slightest regard for his own heritage. Yaqub was succeeded by his brother Amr, who had stayed in the east to fight off any would-be usurpers. The Safarids and Abbasids both had other enemies to worry about, so Amr and Talha concluded a quick truce shortly after Yaqub's death in 879. This allowed the Caliphate to focus on the disastrous rebellion raging in Iraq, which had reached the outskirts of Baghdad by this point. Amr concentrated his efforts against Khujistani, an ex-captain of the Tahirids who had seized Nisapur in their name a few years back. Khujistani proved to be a difficult foe, and it wasn't until his unexpected death in 882 that the Safarids managed to regain the upper hand in Khurasan and eventually take its capital once again. Khujistani's lieutenant, Rafa ibn Harthama, would prove to be an even more persistent menace, and he will go on to disrupt Greater Khurasan for over a decade. Between the Abbasids, Zaydis, and Safarids, he could always find someone ready to make common cause against the others. The politics of the East will stay like this for quite some time, with powers allying with and against one another to gain the upper hand. Let's cover a few more years and conclude with how the Safarids officially became the new rulers of Khurasan, as that will give us a good example of these multipolar dynamics. The Abbasids managed to pacify Iraq by late 883, after which they were free to turn their attention back east. Somewhat miraculously, the last Tahirid governor, Muhammad ibn Tahir, was liberated by Talha's men during the Battle of Deir al-Aqul. The caliph invested Muhammad with Khurasan once more, but since there was no way to actually install him, Rafi'l, the man leading the rebellion against the Safarids, was officially designated as his rightful representative. Talha then began planning an invasion into Safarid territory, with the apparent goal of eliminating them altogether. Aided by the governors of western Iran, he led an army that smashed through their forces in Faris, then Kirman, and chased Amr's men all the way back to their native Sistan. It was a deceptively easy campaign, something which probably had to do with Safarid strategy. 
Now that the armies were at the gates of Sistan, Talha gained a fuller appreciation for how difficult it was to hold territory in these far-flung corners of the Caliphate. The dangerous and sparsely populated province of Kerman already had him overextended and exposed, and he didn't venture to send his men into Sistan proper. Negotiations were opened, and on the condition that they pay their taxes every year, the Safarids were officially recognized as masters of Greater Khorasan, including Belch, Sistan, Kirman, and Thadis. Rafah was declared an outlaw once more, leading him to reach out to the Zaydis of Tabaristan for an alliance against the other. Khorasan was no longer Abbasid problem, though. It was up to its new masters, the Safarids, to pacify their domain. We covered a lot today, but don't give up on me just yet. It's time we try and make sense of what all this meant for the relationship between the Caliphate and Khorasan. The Abbasids had a pretty good thing going with the Tahirids. In retrospect, Al-Ma'mun's arrangement looks like a masterful bit of statecraft. But of course, there were no assurances that things were going to work out so well at the time. He invested the Tahirids with enormous authority. Not only did they command veteran armies of their own, but as super-governors of the East, they could call upon others around them. It is not hard to imagine how things could have gone wrong, but it seems like Al-Ma'mun found the right partners for the job. The Safarids were a poor substitute. While they had most of the same responsibilities that the Tahirids once had, their alliance with the Abbasids was clearly only out of necessity. It will shift with the times, for now the two needed one another to bolster each other's legitimacy. The Safarids were much less loyal than the Tahirids, but the real kicker that doomed this relationship was the growing distance between Samarra and its eastern agents. The new lords of Khorasan had nothing in common with the Abbasids, not even a language. The Safarids never adopted Arabic in their courts, and other dynasties who came to power in the east all began to patronize Persian scholarship leading to an efflorescent revival of the language and culture. An argument can be made that the Tahirids only attained their position because the Arabs were too weak to control the East after the Great Fitna. Thanks to their loyal and capable stewardship, however, the Abbasids got a whole lot out of the East for very little input, totally justifying the arrangement established by Al-Ma'mun. The way I see it, there was nothing inherently wrong with letting another family run Khurasan, but there were a couple caveats. The partnership had to be actively maintained, so that no cultural, diplomatic, or political distance could get between the parties. Also, the senior partner had to have a military edge over the other, otherwise junior might be tempted to test the hierarchical order. Had these precepts been followed, the Safarids would have never dreamt of attacking the Caliphate. And indeed, the Tahirids may not have fallen in the first place. As long as they could find someone they could depend on, this feudal model offered the Abbasids a way to earn revenue 
without having to actually guard or govern a province. Central authority was much reduced after the anarchy, and the ruling clan began to pursue such setups more often. The administration just didn't have the scale required to govern the entire realm, so trusted commanders were given a free hand with the provinces they were assigned. Governors in parts of Iraq, Syria, and Egypt came to enjoy a sort of independence more akin to the Tahirids than the regular governor-caliph relationship. Decentralization this close to home was risky, and we'll explore the developments together next time, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.